beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you have an old homestead, a family homestead, which has been in the family for generations, and you're digging around in the attic one day, and you find an old family Bible, and in the front, pages and pages of lists of generation after generation, births and deaths and marriages, and a few details added in here and there. What would you think? Wouldn't it be fascinating? It's your history. Sure, it's just a list of names and dates, but it's, it's not dry and it's not boring if, it, if it's your ancestry, if it's your family history. You savor the names, the dates, and the details. This is where you come from. Well, the Bible, brothers and sisters, is history. The Bible is the record of the mighty acts of God for the redemption of his people. And you know who his people are? That's us. This is a great introduction that we have here in our text, the first line in Matthew. It begins with the book of the genealogy. And then there are a whole bunch of names. They're They're not dry. They're not dusty and they're not boring because this is our family history. This has to do with us. And there's a reason that Matthew deliberately begins his letter or his uh, gospel with historical record. Because that's how the Old Testament begins as well, with historical record. Our faith is not in some myth that we've imagined, that we've made up, some invisible friend in the sky, like the atheists like to say jeeringly. But the Christian faith is built on and founded on historical facts that are recorded in the pages of Scripture. And this is our Family history, also here as we begin the New Testament, on page one of the New Testament. And it's specifically the history about our oldest brother and our Lord, Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, for people that enjoy digging into the details, perhaps some of you have already done that and you've realized that Luke in chapter 3, I think it is, Luke has a, a genealogy of the Lord Jesus as well. And it's sometimes the same, but often quite different. Now, we don't have time this morning to get into all the different details of how they compare and why. But one thing we can conclude very quickly If the apostles and the evangelists were intent on inventing a new religion and conspired together to make up things about Jesus and about his resurrection, one thing they would not have done is included a genealogy in Luke chapter 3, which is significantly different than the one in Matthew chapter 1. If you talk to police investigators and detectives, they will tell you that when the witnesses give exactly the same story in every detail, you know they've been conspiring and talking together 
and it's unlikely that it's the full truth. When we, in the scriptures, run across things that we think, wow, how does that fit with that other scripture? We proceed from the presupposition and the certain knowledge that this is the word of God. It is breathed out by God, and God does not lie. God does not contradict himself. So if there's something which seems not to fit with something else, the problem is right here. Well, maybe right here in my heart, but it's certainly not with God. And so Christians humbly and patiently look for a way to reconcile what seem to be irreconcilable differences sometimes in the, in the Scripture. Another case of the genealogy we have before us in this morning in our text in Matthew, and the one in Luke, which is somewhat the same but also somewhat different, one possible solution is that Matthew is tracing the royal line, the line of who is heir to the throne, while Mary, in Luke's gospel, it is Mary's physical descent, which also comes from David. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, we read that our Lord is descended from David according to the flesh. And that's, that means that not only in his office as king is he a, a descendant of David, but also biologically through his mother Mary, he is a descendant of David. Well, those are the introductory remarks. Let's get into the text now and start reading. And then when we find something that is of import or interest, we will stop. So let's start there in chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy. And we have to stop right away. Because this is fascinating. The book of the genealogy. There is a, an Old Testament translation into Greek called the Septuagint, which was already made uh, many years before the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. And in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 begins with exactly these words that Matthew 1 verse 1 has in the Greek. Now, if you turn to Genesis 2 4, you'll remember it from our sermons in Genesis. It's the language of the Toledot, the generations. Genesis 2, 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Historical record of what happened to the heavens and the earth. And Matthew deliberately uses the same language to begin his gospel. The Septuagint was the common translation of the scriptures that was in common use, and often the apostles and even the Lord Jesus, they quote from the Greek Old Testament. He uses the same words. Why? Because Matthew is continuing the history. He's recording for us the Toledot, the generations the history of Jesus Christ. And actually, in the Greek, it kind of sounds like this. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, that word is there in the Greek, and that's where we get the, the Bible name that we have. The Bible book named Genesis comes from that verse. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. What is, what is Matthew seeing? What is he doing? Well, he's telling us, I am recording history. I am recording a new beginning. We can 
translate very loosely this first verse to say this, the book of the new beginning in Jesus Christ. But you remember from our sermons on Genesis that the Toledote, they would deal with what fell out or what happened on account of or what happened subsequently to the person or the thing named. So why is Jesus Christ at the beginning of this Toledote, of this generation account? Why is he at the beginning? Because he's right there at the end as well. We read about that in verse 16. He's there at the end. He's at the beginning, and he's at the end. I wonder why. Who is he? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. So in the historical record, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that can come at the end and at the beginning. Now, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we know what that means. Catechism students, you know what that means? Jesus means Savior. This is the Savior we've been waiting for. Christ. Catechism students, you know that too, right? Christ means anointed one, Messiah, the Davidic king that we've been waiting for. And Matthew says, I'm going to tell you the story, the history of him. And this introduction is not just for the chapter, it's not just for the gospel, it's for the whole New Testament. The whole New Testament is the history of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he is, says Matthew, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now if you turn to Matthew chapter 22 verse 41 for a moment, 22:41, then the Lord Jesus is sparring verbally with the Pharisees. The Lord Jesus likes to ask questions, so he does. He says to them in verse 42 of chapter 22 of Matthew, he says, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And then the Lord Jesus refers to Psalm 110. He says, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And note, just in passing, what the Lord Jesus says about David and the Psalms here. You see the the inspiration of the Psalms. He says, David spoke the words of Psalm 110 in the spirit. This is the very word of God. It's not just David speaking there. So what does that mean? What's the Lord Jesus getting at? Well, honor, greater honor, is owed to fathers and to ancestors. How is it that a son of David is above him? How is it that one of his sons, one of his descendants, he has to look up to and call him my Lord? How does Christ have precedence to his father David? Well, the answer is, is that he was before David. He is David's God. He is David's creator. He is a greater king than David could ever be. And so, it is true of David, but it is also true of John the Baptist. You remember what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1. He says, he who comes after me 
ranks before me because he was before me. So the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of David, but he's also before David. And then he's the son of Abraham. Now let's turn to John chapter 8 for a moment. John 8, 56. And here the Lord Jesus surprises the Jews with what he says. In fact, he gets them very upset. He's speaking with the the Jews and, and he says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day He saw it and was glad. So the Lord Jesus is speaking conversationally as if he he was right there with Abraham and he knows all about it. And the Jews mock him for that. They They say, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? They're expecting the answer. Well, no, I guess not. But the answer that Jesus gives to them surprises them. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So the Lord Jesus takes to himself the divine name, Yahweh. I am who I am. And the Jews know what he's doing. The Jews know that he's saying that he is God of God. Very God of very God. And so they pick up stones to throw at him. This is blasphemy. So here we have the book of the history of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He stands at the beginning and he stands at the end of his own history because he is God, true God, and man, true man. He stands at the very beginning of history. He makes history happen. In him all the promises of God are yes and amen. The promises to David that we sang about from Psalm 89. Your throne will last forever. We were singing about Christ the King. Because in Christ the King we have an eternal ruler on David's throne. What does Gabriel announce to Mary in Luke chapter 1? He says, the Lord will give him the throne of David his father. And he will rule over his house and over his kingdom And of his kingdom there will be no end. He's an eternal king. We remember the words of Isaiah chapter 9 that we dealt with a few weeks ago. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Jesus is the yes and amen of God to the promises of David. He's also the yes and amen of God to the promises made to Abraham. Abraham was promised by God, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Kings will come from you, God promises Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. And here he is, the fulfillment of that promise. So all through history, the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ sovereignly directed history towards the fulfillment of the promises about him. The Lord Jesus as creator knit together his own body in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Lord Jesus as mighty sovereign creator cultivated the tree on which he would be crucified. He nurtured from infancy the men who would nail him there. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And this is his story, says Matthew. It's all about him. And then he goes on to give us a very deliberately organized genealogy in the next verses. It's a three sets of 14. And there he lays it out very clearly in verse 17, the last verse of our, our text. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us, does it? Three times 14. If anybody's good at math, it's 42, six times seven. What is this all about? Well, maybe it doesn't mean a lot to us, but it meant a lot to the Jews. He's writing to the Jews. And the Jews use letters to count. So one would be A, and two would be B, and three would be C, and D would be four, etc. Until you get to ten, and then you keep counting. So you can actually write your name as a number in Hebrew. In Greek, you can do the same thing. Well, whose name comes out to 14? David's name does. David in Hebrew only has three letters because they don't use vowels. So there's a D, and there's a Hebrew V, which is different than ours. The Hebrew V is way at the beginning of the alphabet because it's actually a B. And then there's another D. Here are the numbers. It's a four plus a six plus a four. Now, maybe the elementary school students are figuring that out in their head. Four plus six, that's 10, plus four, that's 14. That's the number of David's name. What is Matthew doing? He's saying the history of our Lord has royal stamped all over it. David, David, David. Matthew wants to communicate to his Jewish audience in terms that they understand. He says, this is the one. This is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David, the horn of salvation, which we sang about. The lamp that has come to shine. The one who comes to sit on the throne of David, the eternal king. He's here. And his name is Jesus. Now to get 14, 14, and 14, Matthew has to do a bit of fiddling with the names. He has to skip some names, especially in the the middle part and and, and even more names in, in the last part. And uh, that's not really a problem for ancient authors. We have a way of doing history nowadays, which is our way of doing history. Uh, In the olden days, back then, the time of of Matthew and the apostles, uh, it was acceptable to arrange the the material. And everybody knew that you could sometimes say so-and-so was the son of or the descendant of so-and-so, and you would miss out on one or two generations that weren't that important. You were just drawing the lines from important dot to important dot in the history. That's what Matthew does. But his point is very clear. David, David, David. So let's go into the the names now and we'll see uh, what the Lord, what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us. We can spend a lot of time on this genealogy. We don't have a lot of time, but we'll just catch the highlights this morning. So we have Abraham, verse 2, the father of all believers. We have Isaac, the son of the promise. 
And, and as the, the Jews that are reading this at first, as they're reading this, they will call to mind all the Old Testament stories that are connected to these names. The, the picture of Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice of, of Abraham's only son. And as a picture of the coming Redeemer. Jacob is next, and he's the, the supplanter, the deceiver. Then Judah. Oh, well, Judah. A royal name, but also kind of an embarrassing name because he sold his brother into slavery. He slept with his daughter-in-law, and one of the children from that incestuous relationship ends up being an ancestor to our Messiah. Well, that's a bit strange, isn't it? And Matthew isn't embarrassed, so he doesn't try to hide it. It's right there. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. That's his daughter-in-law. He's not hiding the skeletons in the closet. They're in full view. That's Judah, says the scripture, and uh, his brothers. And so we see here that the Holy Spirit includes all of Israel in the promises of the Messiah. It's not just the one tribe. Then there's Boaz by Rahab. Well, that's a surprise on many levels because at this time in the ancient days, they normally didn't mention the women in the genealogies, Matthew mentions a whole bunch of ladies. Why? Five times he mentions a woman in this list. And each time when he mentions a woman, it's connected with something that God is working in a very marvelous and unexpected way. Rahab was a prostitute. She lived a shameful life of sin. And she was a pagan prostitute at that. But God can take people that are wallowing in filthy and shameful sins and he can redeem them and he can draw them to himself and he can sanctify them and clean them and he can make them into someone who is part of his glorious work of redemption. Someone who is even a mother in the line. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's kind of comforting to us sinners, isn't it? That God can do things like that. Obed, says the scripture. Obed by Ruth. Well, here's another pagan. She's a descendant of Lot. She's a Moabitess. And we know where they come from, right? The Moabites come from Lot sleeping with his two daughters. More incest. More skeletons. Matthew is not pulling his punches. Is very, very transparent. But out of that shameful and sinful origin, there's more redemption. Ruth is drawn into the people of God and made into one of the mothers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to a high point in the genealogy. David the king, verse 6. David the king, and then Solomon, the most glorious of kings. Well, that's true. But we just noticed in the previous verses that these guys, they come from, they are descendants of a very sinful line of people that really needed God's grace and forgiveness and sanctification. And that need for the grace, the mercy, the washing, the forgiveness of God doesn't get less, it gets more, because the very next line reminds us of where Solomon comes from. 
David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't even have to mention her name because he wants to draw attention to the fact that he is the result of a sinful union with a woman whom David stole from her husband and then murdered the poor guy. More skeletons in the closet. Bathsheba was most likely a Hittite, like her husband, Uriah, and she, too, is brought into the family tree of our Savior through adultery, followed by lies and murder. Then we have Rehoboam. We remember him. He's the guy that managed to rip up the covenant people into two parts, and he's partially responsible for centuries of idol worship in the northern kingdom, cutting people off from Jerusalem as they live in the north. And then there's a long list of David's line. We don't have time to mention all of them. Some of them are good men, but there are also a lot of evil. There's a lot of wickedness and idolatry and unfaithfulness and pride and cowardice. And at one point, between Joram and Isaiah, there in verse 8, Matthew just skips three generations of kings. Just, he just skips right over them. Why is that? Well, Joram married Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. Joram didn't marry Ahab. He married Ahab's daughter. The daughter of Ahab and Jezebel was named Athaliah. Joram married her, and she was a lot like her mom. Evil, cruel, wicked, idolatrous, hated God. And so when their son, Ahaziah, became king and then he died... She said, I'm going to consolidate power. So she went ahead and murdered all the royal family. That's her family. Murdered all of her grandchildren too. She's not a very nice grandma. Just one of them escapes, Joash. It's a pretty horrible time in Israel's history. Matthew just leaves out this whole shameful period. He cuts out the generations that are most closely connected to the wicked house of Ahab and Jezebel to the third and fourth generation. And then he starts up again again with Isaiah. And as I said, in, in the ancient texts, the father of or the son of, they can, they can mean uh, the grandfather, the great-grandfather. That's understood by the initial readers. So, David, so, so Matthew had to cut down the generations to 14, and he probably figured, I'll get rid of the ones that are most cl- closely connected with the house of the royal house of northern Israel with, with Jezebel. But then we keep going in verse 9. We've got Ahaz. Well, he sacrificed his son in the fire and closed the temple. Manasseh, Manasseh was cruel. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. It's getting worse and worse. And, and then finally, the Davidic line, like a plane that has stalled and is in an is in an unrecoverable spin, it crashes and burns finally in verse 11 in the exile, the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah is listed in the Chronicles list as the captive. Jeconiah, the captive, because he spent his last years in prison in Babylon, far away from his throne. Talks about Jeconiah and his brothers. And the word brothers here refers to the the confusion at the end of Judah there. Before they were brought into exile, there were a number of attempts 
made by the Babylonians to appoint Jeconiah's uh, family members as regents and governors, but they all fail spectacularly until finally there's nothing left. But Jeconiah is the last official king, really speaking. Now notice that Jeconiah gets mentioned twice. You see that? 11, Jeconiah, and then verse 12, Jeconiah gets mentioned again to make 14 in the last section. Why is that? Well, he's included in the kingly section because he was a king. And then we start off in the third ignominious section where David's sons are no longer reigning, and Jeconiah heads up that list. He's the captive. You know, the archaeologists have found his ration card. Isn't that amazing? They found a ration card for prisoners in Babylon, and one of those ration cards mentions this man, uh, Jeconiah, identifying him as king of Judah. So this is a no one now, a prisoner, a captive, fathering another no one. As we go down the list from now on, I mean, who are these guys? They're no ones. They're not important. They're oppressed. They're captives. They're cut off from their royal inheritance. And we get down to the end of the list, and we read about Joseph, the husband of Mary. And who are Joseph and Mary? Well, Joseph is the heir to the royal throne of David. But he's got calloused hands because he's working hard to make ends meet. He's a peasant. So is Mary. Peasants. Impoverished peasants under Roman oppression. When they go to the temple to give the sacrifice, they give the sacrifice of the poor. They have nothing. And they are considered as nothing. This is a a horrible situation for the glorious house of David to be in. If you turn to the book of praise now, we sang a lot of stanzas from Psalm 89, and here's one stanza we didn't sing. Stanza 15, Psalm 89, page 222. O Lord, you've removed the scepter from his hand, cast his throne to the ground, him from your presence banned. How long, O Lord, how long will you from him be hiding? How long before your blazing wrath will be subsiding. And look at the end of Sansa 16. Lord, where is now your love? Why has it waned and wavered? Where is the faithfulness that once you swore to David? Where is it? And Matthew says, well, here it is. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. There's a new beginning that's happening. Now, as we read this genealogy, there are three things that I want to draw your attention to. Number one is that we learn from these texts, these verses, that Christ's holiness, his glory, his power, his sinlessness are certainly not things that he has inherited from his human ancestors. Christ is born from a line of people and inherits the throne from a line of people that are tainted with and twisted by some of the most shameful and wicked sins you can imagine. It's certainly not because he has a great family history. It's certainly not that he's a a superman evolved at last from a long line of supermen. What a relief, actually, to read in verse 16, 
that Jesus actually doesn't have any physical descent from these people. The father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, was called the Christ. And we know that his human nature is taken from Mary, but she is found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So there's an active work of God in purifying the conception of his son in her womb. So any, any goodness, any glory, any worth, we learn again, must not be sought for or looked for in man, but only from God. That's the first thing that I want to draw your attention to. There's the second thing. What in your history are you ashamed of? What skeletons do you have in your closet? What things in your past, recent or distant, horrify you and shame you and oppress you? Brothers and sisters, you need to know that God can take broken sinners with messed up lives and he can take all of that sin and all of that shame and all of that guilt on himself and deal with it. And he can make straight what is crooked out of sinful, shameful people. He brings about good and glorious works of salvation because that's who God is and that's what God does. And so if you have things in your life that are weighing down on you, don't keep carrying them, but bring them to him and leave them with him. Because if God can use these sinners here in Matthew chapter 1, if he can use these sinners, and they're pretty ugly, these sins, if he can use these sinners to work towards the inauguration of his kingdom, then he can certainly sanctify the messiness and the shame of your life in a way which promotes the coming of the fullness of the kingdom in glory. So don't hang back and say, I can't participate. I just have to watch from the sidelines because I am not worthy. Because no one is worthy. If we're looking at our own worthiness, we're all going to stand up and walk out of this church building right now, starting with the guy in the pulpit. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and lose your guilt, lose your shame, and know that he can and will work for his glory in your life. No matter what you've done and no matter who you are. And then thirdly, as we look at this genealogy, we remember that we've been waiting since Genesis chapter 3. We've been waiting for the descendant of Eve to crush the head of the serpent. We've been waiting for Balaam's prophecy to come true. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel who will destroy the enemies of God. But every king, no matter how evil or even how good he was, was not the one. And finally, after thousands of years and after centuries of kings who just didn't cut it, after centuries more of fading into ignominious insignificance, finally, the anointed, the Mashiach, the, the Messiah, the Christ is born. Where 
is the faithfulness you once swore to David, laments the psalmist in Psalm 89 in the exile, when the house of David is reduced to ruins. And here in Matthew chapter 1, the Lord says, well, here he is. Well, here it is. And he has a name. My faithfulness has a name. His name is Jesus. And in the middle of the night, the angel comes to Joseph in the dream, and he says, Joseph, son of David. And even though Joseph's dreaming, he might have thought, well, are you trying to make fun of me? Are you mocking me? Now, here I am, poor and impoverished, a peasant. And you're reminding me of what I should have been. But the angel's not joking. The angel's not mocking because Joseph, the, the title son of David, is going to mean something again. In the darkness, the light of the world is born. In shame and humiliation, the Lord of glory is born. In insignificance, poverty, and oppression, the eternal King of kings is born. What's happening here in the beginning of the gospel is that this is D-Day in the cosmic battle between darkness and light. God establishes a beachhead in rebel territory And then first John the Baptist and then later on the Lord Jesus begins proclaiming, repent and believe because the kingdom of God has come near. It is here. It has begun. A new beginning. A king is born. The king is born. The king who can bring us out of the darkness of sin. The king who can save. The king who can make things right. The king who can destroy everything that attacks and oppresses us. The king who destroys our enemies, who destroys sin and death and breaks the power of the kingdom of darkness. The king who bears on his shoulders all power in earth and heaven. The king who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. The king who sits on the eternal throne of David and whose kingdom of peace, justice, and righteousness will grow and grow and increase forever and ever. A king who is the fulfillment of every promise of the word of God. A king who is the word made flesh. The king who is called Jesus Christ. Your God, your Lord, your king. Amen.